Hello and welcome to this week's Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday podcast, sponsored by Betfair. I'm Ali Maxwell. He is EFL on Quest superstar, George Ellick. Hi, George. How was your weekend? I actually go by the name of Genius George now after the tease at the beginning of the show. Super Sammy Parkin and Genius George Ellick, said Jackie Oatley. I'm good. Yeah, I'm all right. Good, nice little Monday today, isn't it? It's always interesting when you've been on EFL on Quest because my norm, my morning ritual is normally getting up in the morning, making myself a cup of tea, having a banana, and watching and watching EFL on Quest. Whereas when you've been on it, you don't really have to rewatch it unless you're doing it for personal um, pro- progression reasons. So I actually I actually watched The Dissident this morning, which has been a long time coming. You watched a Monday um, morning film. Yeah. That is the luxury living of a self-employed uh, football talker. Well, having having worked a 12-hour day on Saturday as well, <laughs> to be fair. And Mondays, uh, you know, unless... We've obviously always got the pod, but I try and do, except for podcast preparation, and try and take it as easy as possible because it's almost like our Sunday. Incredible and, and valuable insight into the, the mind and work schedule of George Ellick there. Well, I haven't worked a single minute since we finished the betting show on Thursday. Successful betting show, I should say as well. Been in Paris, haven't I? The city in which I formerly lived, of course. Just uh, just dipping around, seeing what's changed since the famous 2013-14 season when I was a, a resident de Paris. What's changed? Well, it's still delightful and shabby in parts. Arty. Um, quite judgmental, uh, tasty for sure. What was the best thing that you ate? I had a lovely, uh, a lovely duck uh, last night. A magre, a magre de canard rather mm. than a confit de canard. Uh, both two good canard options. And I also had. We went to a restaurant that was Alsace themed, the Alsace region, uh, hotly wow. contested, of course, during uh, one, if not both, of the world wars. And uh, because it is sort of German, but also French. They love sausage, like the Germans. And I ordered an Andriette sausage, which is basically, it looks like the normal sort of sausage that you and I might have, bangers and mash-wise. But inside, rather than your average sausage meat, it's basically giblets, innards, offal. It was probably absolutely delicious, but I couldn't help but feel that it smelled a little bit like when you drive past a pig farm. Did you deliberately order the Andriette knowing what it was, or was this a... Um... I knew it was a sausage of the region. I didn't necessarily know it was going to be the mainly organs, so that was a blow. Uh, thankfully, my better uh, half had had something nice. I also went to an art exhibition, so that was nice. My conclusion being that art, not as fun as football. But I did have fun following all the football on Saturday. Uh, you were messaging me a lot during Quest, which was helpful, keeping me updated. I was on like a three-hour shopping trip. Uh, for which I needed the stamina of a Lewis O'Brien to get through. But it means I can track the major moments that we're going to talk about on the pod by which shop I was in at the time that they happened. So I was in a place called APC, APC, uh, when Charlton and Burton both had a man sent off for fighting. Uh, I was in uh, the the flagship Uniqlo store in Paris, amazing place, when you told me that Scott Twine had pinged in another free kick. Uh, and I was in the Veya, uh, those lovely... Those lovely sustainable shoes. I was in the Veya store when uh, Pompey took a shot lead, shock lead at Wickham. I didn't realise your trip to Paris was a business trip, getting all these new commercial deals for us. Unbelievable. Can't wait to hear the... Uh... <laughs> I have got a pair of new shoes, which I will be wearing on Quest on Saturday night. Very smart. Um, and then finished shopping. Thought all the football was finished. Almost choked on my chocolat show, George, when I saw that uh, Alex Newby had equalised at the death for Rochdale, deep into injury time. 
Sacre bleu. Uh, let's talk about the football because it was a great weekend across League One and League Two, reduced docket notwithstanding. We're actually going to start with a couple of championship bits and bobs to keep the championship fans on side. Firstly, congrats to Mitro for uh, booking Serbia's spot at the World Cup and continuing his frankly disgraceful run of goal-scoring form, um, and it was great to see him getting one over Cristiano Ronaldo, of course. But we're going to talk about another great championship striker, George. Andy Carroll, we are led to believe, will be signing for Reading FC, which is pretty amazing. They've already signed Danny Drinkwater and Scott Dan over the last few months, and for the most part, those two players have moved into the side and started performing quite well. So at the top end of the pitch, which I think everyone knows at this point is, is uh, something they need, Andy Carroll. Welcome to Berkshire. What are your thoughts? <laughs> uh, I mean, they, they need a striker, don't they? So I guess in that sense, um, it's good. Uh, it, it probably suggests that Lucas Schwau is still quite a long way off being able to, to be considered um, to come back in the side. Saw Carroll play a bit last season for Newcastle. He's still as exactly as you'd expect. He is um, a target man. <laughs> He'll win a lot of headers. He'll shoot from pretty much anywhere with any limb or head uh, whenever he gets on the ball and didn't seem to carry much of a goal threat. So uh, it doesn't really seem in my mind to fit into the, the Reading style of play is the one thing. Mm. I did you see know, some of their fans the... wondering how many crosses do we actually put into the box for Andy Carroll to thrive off? Yeah, I mean, when you consider their two best players are Ovi Ajaria, who hasn't necessarily been um <laughs> thought you gonna say he hasn't put in a cross for three years no he just hasn't been in very good form recently and then and then um john swift who's been in, in sensational form uh, i don't really see how andy carroll's presence on the football pitch does a great deal for them unless you know i guess the plan is to, to play them off him um but then he's gonna have to do a, a more of a hold-up job rather than a flick on job uh i mean who knows i have no idea how fit he is I, i'd be pretty surprised if this ends up being a, a masterstroke. But at the same time, Danny Drinkwater certainly made a better start to life at Reading than I than I anticipated. I, I do think in Drinkwater, you know, I'll always say this, Drinkwater in that Leicester team, uh, not the one that won the league, uh, the one that got promoted out of the championship was absolutely sensational. And he isn't, there's no kind of discernible reason why a guy who made a move to Chelsea on merit just a couple of years ago shouldn't be a good championship midfielder. I think with Andy Carroll, the... The career arc has, has has already gone into the the net negative um, part of the graph. So yeah, it, it feels unlikely, but I guess having a body and having somebody with a very specific skill set um, gives them another option up top. Yeah, I'm quite up for it. Uh, as you say, only 18 starts in the last four full seasons for Carroll, but of course that is at the very top level where it's not hard to understand why even when fit. There's no obvious fit for him as a as a Premier League number nine. But I think, you know, in the championship, th there is a big gap between the two leagues. And particularly, as we know, when it comes to, to being a striker at the levels, uh, I think it's a bit more of a broad church for strikers. So I guess that the style of play fit is probably the biggest question for me. If he is fit, uh, I think it could be I think it could be an interesting signing. You never know what the wage will be. You know, I'm always a little nervy when it comes to discussing Reading finances because they have massively overspent on wages uh, consistently over the last few years and it's not something that I want to support necessarily and it's something that they're they're currently being punished for so you'd hope that it's not something that's going to you know put them back towards a, 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 a 
a scenario where they're overspending for players on player wages, but certainly a position that they need. Uh, another knock to the completely flaky confidence of George Puskas and Jamari Clark, who obviously scored two to win them the game against Birmingham in the last game. He's been seen wearing a protective boot, so I think perhaps it's his injury that has um, made this even more necessary. And last time at this level, 2009-2010, it is over a decade ago, but Carroll scored 17 league goals in uh, 32-90s. He was 20 years old at that point, less ravaged by injury as he is now, But he and he was also playing for the title winners rather than a bottom-half team. But... I'm up for it. I'm up for Carroll in the championship. That's where he belongs. Um, some championship manager news, uh, George. Starting with you, went. You kind of went like, well, you didn't really go ITK, but you went. You went kind of all news reporter on us yesterday on Sunday on Twitter, which mm. I enjoyed. A uh, bit of bit of Barnsley manager rumorising. Just want to spread the love, you know. When you find something out, just um, pass it on, and people seem to enjoy it. So, yeah, it's um, sources in Sweden. Uh, reporting that Poya Asbagi is going to be the next Barnsley manager. This hasn't been confirmed, but seemingly all, all of the sources in Sweden who are reporting this seem to be legitimate. Um, and it's quite an interesting one where he seems to be almost kind of the, the golden boy of, of Swedish coaching. He's, he's 36 now. He turned down the job reportedly two years ago when Gerhard Struber got it. Um, and I think since then, things haven't necessarily gone to plan. He was manager of IFK Gothenburg and uh, won the Swedish Cup with them. This is the classic case. If you read his Wikipedia page, it'll seem like that's all he did. Whereas when you dig in a bit a, di- a bit deeper, it turns out the league performances at Gothenburg w- were not good enough. Um, and he left the club at a pretty low ebb. Although seemingly there were circumstances off the pitch and you know whatever's happened at the club since then suggests that it maybe wasn't all his fault. He's since managed the, the Swedish under-21 side. Um, and... All reports, you know, it, it's interesting reading Swedish football fans' perception of him. You've got those who look at what he did at Gothenburg and say, why on earth would a championship club in England be taking on this guy? He was rubbish. And you've got a lot of guys who maybe know a bit more about him, the person, and know what he was about before going to, to IFK Gothenburg, who hold him in incredibly high esteem as a coach. So you're guessing that um, Barnsley are looking at... at uh, the latter option. I, I think the very promising thing in my mind, at least is that if he was a manager who was approached two years ago in, in a time where Barnsley's manager recruitment was, was very, very strong, then that suggests that unlike Marcus shop, where it was an attempt to carry on the, you know, the blueprint with different personnel making the decisions, this is going back to a, a previous shortlist of which, you know, the candidate they ended up hiring in, in Struber was obviously very, very strong. So that's uh, interesting. He he seems to be a manager who likes his teams to play. Um, so in, this isn't going to be a Valerian Ishmael part two. It's possession-based um, with an emphasis on young players. So, I mean, it's it's exciting. Who knows? I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big job to come into because, um, you know, if he doesn't improve things pretty quickly, Barnsley are going to be one of the sides embroiled in a relegation battle. And for a 36-year-old rookie-ish manager who's, who's only experience in the league so far hasn't been a successful one. Um, it's bold, it's brave, but again, with a, with a high ceiling and somebody who's obviously got a bit about him. Yeah, one to watch, certainly. We've got a manager in at Cardiff until the end of the season. It's the same man that's been in the dugout for the last three games since the sacking of Mick McCarthy. Steve Morrison will take charge of Cardiff City until the end of the season. Uh, of course, he's had three games in charge so far after Cardiff's horrendous run. Was it 
was it eight, nine games they went losing in a row under McCarthy at the end of his regime. Then they got a, a three-nil, three-all draw rather against Stoke, having been three-nil down in Morrison's first game. Uh, they lost one-nil to QPR in the midweek before coming from behind to beat Huddersfield two-one. Now the response has been really, really positive um, from the Cardiff fans, and I think that's. The, f- the first place to start because good energy is important in football. We know that it's important in dressing rooms. And I think that the fan support for this decision, you would presume that the squad, the players are, are on side. Many of them, of course, as discussed last week, under 23 types who have played under Steve Morrison in the Cardiff under 23s over the last 18 months or so. The first thing is positivity. And that's a nice thing to see um, in those three games so far. I, I spoke about it last Monday. I haven't seen enough yet to definitively say either way whether I think in terms of results this is going to mean they're going to start flying up the table or not. Um, they were pretty poor against QPR. They were very poor in the first half against Stoke and they were pretty poor for at least half of that game against Huddersfield. So although results have improved, although the style of play has improved a little bit, he hasn't tried to flip it on its head. He's kept the same basic shape, but the style has been a little bit more ambitious. Um, things like putting Giles at left wing back rather than at left wing in order to have a, a more attack, one more attacking player on the pitch rather than a more defensive-minded wing back. Those have been really positive moves, and I like that. So I don't think I have a problem with this, uh, but I also don't think it's a sure thing when it comes to Cardiff's short mid-term results this season. Have I seen enough in the three games to say that they'll... Or to confidently say they'll fly up the table, no. But equally, with the good energy, um, could they could they get themselves into the warm embrace of that championship seeded batch? Yeah, probably. I think they probably can. <laughs> um, he's clearly someone that commands respect. Clearly, someone with a very strong personality. I think we all know that from his playing days, and, and we've worked with him once or twice. He's not someone who's going to take any uh, any nonsense. That's for sure. So, I mean, I guess overall, I think. Why not give him the chance, um, especially if he's got the support of the of the club and the fans behind him? Uh, I'm not sure if you have anything to add on Steve Morris and George being in at Cardiff until the end of the season. Nothing to add on what you just said. I mean, wish him all the best. It's a again, um, if I was making the decision, I probably would have waited another couple of weeks before making it. But it's a contact at the end of the season that gives him an opportunity to try and stake his claim for the job long term. Um, but I, I wouldn't say I've seen enough in the first three games of his tenure to suggest that um you know he's 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 going to come come in and immediately turn around their fortunes mm. but best of luck to him it's not without risk of course given their position in the league table 15 points from 17 games they're in 20th at the moment 3 points above the relegation zone so morrison doesn't have a huge grace period to be honest the improved results will have to continue uh, otherwise it's not hard to see the club the fan base starting to get a little bit concerned if they don't move away from the relegation places but we'll see how they get on in his fourth game in charge their next game is away at Preston, quite a big game, and then at home to Hull City as well. Both of those sides in the bottom eight in the table. So two massive fixtures for Morrison straight off the bat here. Um, We've got a League Two sacking and a League Two managerial appointment to discuss later on. Uh, But let's go through the League One weekend action first, George, where our League One leaders, Plymouth Argyle, were in action. Some of the other teams towards the top were on well, were paused because of international duty. But Argyle went to Accrington Stanley. They left with a 4-1 win. It means they're 16 games unbeaten. It was Ryan Lowe's 100th league game 
in charge of Plymouth Argyle. He's won 44, drawn 25, lost 31. 12 of those 31 defeats came in a 17-game stretch at the end of last season, which saw them head into the summer in desperate form, to be quite honest. But what a difference a few months can make, eh? Uh, another amazing result on this incredible Pilgrims roller coaster of a season. Yeah, incredible. Absolutely incredible. Ryan Lowe continues to do an amazing job. Um, this wasn't their best performance of the season by any stretch. Um, that's you know not that's probably more a comment on how good they've been in recent weeks. You know the, the scoreline was familiar um, because Plymouth are scoring a lot of goals this season, winning games by two or three goals. Um, the first goal was a pretty calamitous own goal, um, but the next three were all fantastic pieces of, of individual. Um, skill, I guess, you know, Broom made the first, uh, put it into Houghton, who I think was a cross, um, and Hardy kind of missed it, and, and Houghton gets the goal. Uh, Broom's third, you know, the third goal, Broom's um, strike from distance was superb. I mean, he was the best player on the pitch, and he made the fourth as well um, for Hardy to 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 score from close range. I mean, Accrington had their chances. This was no by no means a one-way game. We've seen Plymouth at their best this season often um, just prevent the opposition from creating anything. I think the fact that Plymouth were ahead pretty early here had a big say in that, but Accrington had their chances. You know, the shot count was 20 to 9 in Accrington's favour, um, and Accrington themselves are short at the moment. Uh, Cobby Bishop was out, suspended here. Dion Charles has been struggling performing fitness all season. Um, Joel Mbongo, who I think a lot of Accrington fans early on in the season were impressed with, seemingly isn't really hitting the heights. It meant that they have Mansell playing up front. Um, you know, this the, the Accrington team that we saw put out on Saturday looks very, very different in my mind to the one that we expected to see at the beginning of the season. And for a side without a particularly large squad, um, I, I was almost quite impressed by the by the level of their, um, especially their attacking play. But I mean, they've just the got the day, this insane approach to games against the the very top teams. They've played six of the top seven already this season. They've lost all six games against those teams. 4-1-4-1-2-1-2-0-5-1-2-1. They really go for it, which I suppose is admirable. It's not coming out with, with any points. I quite like the fact that John Coleman doesn't just go low block and try and grind it out. Um, but it's not really working against the top teams. Maybe, though, it helps them against the other clubs in the league because against anyone who's not in the top seven of League One, uh, they've played 10, te uh, 10 teams in that group and won 21 points from those games. So that they're doing the business when they really need to and then having quite a good time in defeat, it looks like, against the, the top teams. I, I notice, and I think it was part of what you're saying about their starting eleven here, I, I completely agree with you. Players like Mansell uh, and the first start of his Accrington career in the league for Tommy Lee, who got their goal, um, it, it does have a new look to the side. And of course, Accrington have always had to be pretty creative in their recruitment, particularly from non-league. Tommy Lee ticks that box. They got him from Bognor Regis in the summer. Uh, he's been eased into to life at Accrington, but has impressed in the pizza cup two goals and two assists the fans I've seen on social clamoring for, for him to get more league minutes because um, purely in terms of finishing ability and goal threat there seems to be something there uh, and of course he gets his first league start and, and got a goal as well it was a fairly straightforward finish but it feels to me like with the situation with Dion Charles with Bishop um, perhaps struggling to to shoulder the whole burden quality final third players particularly you know, goal getters are, are something they're a bit light on compared to other areas in the pitch. So, I think his development, his emergence, could be uh, could be quite uh, quite big. We got to just talk. Was, Go on. Just just to say, also, um, Liam Coyle as well. He started centre midfield. He's another one. It was his first 
league start of the season, another player who's been playing well in the cup. So you've got Coyle making his first league start. You've got Mansell making his second league start. Lee making his first league start. It is, yeah, I mean, as I say, I think we've, we've got to, for, for our Gar fans listening, you know, credit to you. It was a massive win. You're top of the table, two points clear on merit. And when the players, you know, I know that you've got players out as well. Um, Jeff Kurt on international duty, uh, and you know Galloway's out injured too. You know this is going to be impressive. Uh, we're not taking anything away from you here, but for Accrington, um, it is a bit of a kind of story going under the radar. I guess that they are, they don't have their best team available. They are playing a lot of young players. Um, they, they were beaten four-one here, but if I was an Accrington fan, I'd be quite um, not excited, but I, w- I wouldn't be too um, disappointed. I guess yeah. with the performance, even if the result wasn't great. And Argyle clearly still unbeaten since defeat on opening day. Uh, couldn't be better, really. I wanted just to focus quickly because uh, we can focus a little bit more on, on these clubs this week with fewer fixtures on uh, you know things off the pitch as well because Ryan Lowe has, well, he's got a lot of credit from us over the last few years. I'm pretty sure there was a period where some people listening thought you might be his agent somehow um, <laughs> last season when you're touting him for every job under the sun. Um, but I'm a big fan of, of the chairman, the owner, Simon Hallett, uh, ever since I listened to him speak on the Athletics Business of Football podcast uh, towards the end of last season with uh, Mark Chapman and, and Matt Slater, I mean, he, his his vision for the club and the way that he runs it, the way that he leads it, is everything that that I believe in. Uh, I think myself on that front, and it's it's therefore very cool to see really good things happening. Um, and I would definitely recommend people to go and listen to that. He's always very keen to give credit, as well as Ryan Lowe, to Neil Dewsnip, who's the uh, sporting director or the director of football. I'm not sure of his exact title. And I think we do have to just point out that the summer transfer window looks about as good as, as you're going to get on the budget that they're on in the league that they're in. And they've been uh, using Market Insights, who are guys that we know very well. They were set up a couple of years ago. Uh, we know that they do a lot of work with EFL clubs and Argyle being one of them in particular. And now that transfer window reflects very well on them for sure. Because if you look at, you know, the headline is they got a whole new defence, right? Uh, four centre-backs signed. They play three at the back. They've all had some game time this season. Galloway, Scar, uh, Wilson and Gillespie. What I want to point out is that these aren't necessarily like purely data-driven signings of young players for the future with massive resale potential. These were really good value signings of players to impact the team now, to improve the team straight away. Galloway, well, he'd barely played in the last five years, to be honest. Uh, 14 starts in the Premier League six years ago for Everton Galloway. Really talented, highly thought of young defender. And then didn't start more than five league games in a season since then, six years ago. Wilson was the more sort of the most sort of dependable, I guess, a solid League One defender for the best part of a decade. He wasn't really discussed at Ipswich as being a cut above the level, but clearly a strong defender and very experienced. Dan Scar has been at Walsall for the last few years, doing well for a Walsall side that weren't doing very well themselves. You know, they finished mid-table or worse in League Two the last two seasons. And then Gillespie, well, he'd been in Australia for the last two seasons, so another creative piece of recruitment for them. They got Broom in midfield, who I guess we all think of as a bit of a slam dunk signing because of how good he was for Cheltenham in their promotion for league from League Two. But last season, when Posh bought him, they didn't fancy him almost immediately, 
and Burton didn't play him a huge amount when he was on loan there as well. So I don't think that was necessarily the the League One sure thing uh, that some people might think now. Uh, and and Jordan Houghton at the base midfield, he's been at this level for a while, clearly a classy operator, but again, ended up at MK Dons last season, struggling for game time, struggling with injuries and, and ended up as a bit part player. And I don't think MK Dons were that gutted probably to see him go. So these weren't obvious signings, I guess is what I, I wanted to say. These were... These were signed players that will be ready to slot into our team straight away, perform at a high League One level. Oh, and they also have to be the sort of players that the richer clubs in our league either don't see, don't know about or don't want because we can't compete with them budget-wise. Uh, I think it's uh, it's pretty amazing. In fact, George, I think we've probably got to take a pilgrimage to Plymouth over the next few months, I think. Make a sacrifice at don't. the altar of Ryan Lowe and apologise for <laughs> predicting them to be quite so low in our 1-24s. So annoying. So annoying. Bet there's some good golf courses around there as well. Yeah, I know some. You're very good at finding good golf courses. Uh, MK Dons, four, Cambridge one, the other big winners in the League One weekend. This one, all about Twine and Waters. Yeah. Um, MK coming into this off the back of the scoring four against Crew, but after a, a poor run of form. So, you know, it, it was important for them um, to back that up with a win against another side in Cambridge who, you know, Cambridge have made a very good start to the season. And it, quite often, I think we can just assume that they are one of the lowlier sides in, in, in the table because where we expect them to be, but that isn't the case. You know, coming into this, Cambridge were um, 11th, I think they were. They're now 12th, um, bang mid-table, but MK Dons just wiped the floor with them, really. Um, Waters has had to be pretty patient, you know, for those who for whatever reason, I don't know what else you'd have been doing last season if you're listening to this podcast, but for those who weren't following the EFL this time last year, Max Waters was scoring goals at a ridiculous rate for Crawley. You know, he signed for Crawley a couple of weeks into the season, so he didn't even start the season in their team. Uh, he'd scored 16 goals up to Christmas and got a and got a move to got a move to Cardiff so how are you laughing now I thought you were laughing I'm, I'm still laughing because, wrong than... no I'm laughing because even though we lived it at the time it, the, the whole thing was just so remarkable <laughs> I know and and then the weirdest thing about it was he was, brought, he was bought by for a fair bit of money by Cardiff he was put straight into the team for the, I think the first game when he was in in January playing wide right having played in the front two all season for, for Crawley wide right in a three with Kiefer Moore in the middle was poor, was hooked after 55 minutes. We saw him twice more that season, both times off the bench. It, the whole thing was just a, a mess in terms of, you know, he, he got his move and I'm sure he wouldn't regret it at all given the, the, the leg up it's given him and his football career. Um, but in terms of the style of play, what Cardiff thought they were buying, the whole thing was very, very strange. The decision from MK Dons to take him on was an interesting one because, you know, you think of MK Dons as being a, a, a club who recruit very smartly and, and to all of us watching on, even though Waters was so impressive, it did feel like it could feasibly be a bit of a flash in the pan and they were taking a chance by bringing him in on loan from Cardiff, especially given the other striking options they've got. You know, Troy Parrott, we've seen be the first choice striker, Moisa as well. Um, so, um, you know, Charlie Brown also in the in the squad, um, who we haven't seen a great deal of. But um, So Waters has had to take his time, but that's now, you know, he came into this one with three goals in his last three in all competitions, two of which were in cup games, one in the league, uh, gets his chance to play basically up front with Twine in a front two here, and they were breathtaking. They were they were superb. They they interchanged. They you know they set up two goals for each other, both getting a brace of goals and a brace of assists. Um, it was it was great, and and both Waters' goals were exactly what we saw him do last season. Uh, one he was kind of put through in the left-hand channel and hit it across the keeper pretty early. Uh, I think the keeper maybe should do better. And then the second one, um, MK Don's pressing 
uh, gets the ball back high in Cambridge's half. Um, a couple of passes between the two of them and a really good finish kind of on a, with a bouncing board in the top right-hand corner from Waters who injured himself in the process. Uh, he should be a, a, a player who I think if he plays for the right side, if he plays for a side like MK Don to create a lot of chances, then I think he'll score loads of goals. I, I, I don't see why not. Uh, and this is the run of of goal scoring form should mean that any confidence issues that he may have gone through after being bought and then discarded at Cardiff uh, are a thing of the past. So I, I think now, you know, it's it's taken to mid-November for him to, to get in the side. I'd be pretty surprised if he was out of the side now for the next couple of months. So would I. I mean, his finish, even in the cup game against Stevenage, the FA Cup game the weekend before was, it was Aguero-esque. He was, he was kind of, hmm. the, the angle was narrowing. He was on the right side of the box and he went for the high roof of the net near post option rather than low and across the keeper, which I loved. Uh, brilliant finish. And then obviously, as you mentioned, his first goal on the other side of the box was a low left foot across the goalkeeper into the far corner. So keeping the goalkeepers guessing, um, brilliant finishing and, and uh, yeah, eerily reminiscent of this time last year where practically every every other shot he took found the corner of the net. Twine, two goals and two assists in this game. It means he's sixth in League One for non-penalty goals. It means he's fifth for assists. Uh, it's a quite astonishing start to life at MK Dons for Twine, and it's so exciting. His fourth free-kick goal of the season already. We're a third of the season in, which is insane. Uh, and even more insane is the fact that he's not the top free-kick scorer in League One because Danny Andrew of Fleetwood has scored five already, which is completely ridiculous. Um, but MK Dons, just in general, I think a good time to mention that you know, this time last season, they were on 17 points from 16 games, uh, 28 this time round. So nine points better off in their first 16 games, 31 goals scored versus 18 last season. So you're starting to see that the the, the attacking process is now so ingrained in the club. Uh, Manning has, has taken on where Russ Martin left off and, and going forward, they are very, very, very good at this level. They've actually conceded one goal more than they had at this point last season, 22 from 16. So that's something to improve on. But their underlying defensive numbers very much trending in the right direction as, as Liam Manning gets his feet under the table. They haven't kept a clean sheet in their last seven. So they appear to be improving in that regard, but there's still work to be done. I think they look like a real, real threat uh, at the top of this table as well, which is exciting because we've got a lot of them. Um, and I did a podcast, uh, my Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We interviewed the sporting director, Liam Sweeting, who is a brilliant man, a very, very interesting man, very talented, clearly, uh, very highly thought of within the game. And in discussing with me and Tom Warville just how he... Uh, acts out his role as sporting director in terms of recruiting players, recruiting managers, uh, in the case of Liam Manning, um, and developing that style of play and using data uh, throughout. Really, really interesting. So that's another recommendation for a pod once you're done here. Uh, Wickham nil, Portsmouth won. Wickham had obviously won their first six league games of the season, but it's now back-to-back defeats, uh, George. They will feel like this one was a bit of a heist, I think. Yeah, they will. I feel like they should have won it. Um, <clears throat> this is a, a big result for Danny Cowley uh, because it wards off the um, the circling vultures for a little bit. And I think he'd have, he'd have been expecting the worst. Uh, well, you, we could see on the touchline that he wasn't happy because he felt that he should have had, his side should have had a penalty in the first half. It was a bit of a weird one where um, Jordan Nabita is kind of on the ground and I think I think it's hers, but I'm not sure. One of the players basically runs into him whilst he's on the ground and trip and, and falls over. The referee doesn't give it. Um, I think it probably is a foul because I think it's probably obstruction. Uh, I don't know if you can just kind of 
put your head in your hands and, and sit in one area of the pitch and, and say, well, you've got to run around me now. But um, Wickham went the other end uh, and immediately won a penalty themselves, uh, which was missed, a rare miss from Joe Jacobson. Uh, one of those classic penalties where he misses and everyone's like, what a terrible penalty. And I'm like, well, no, because 88% of the time the keeper dives and it's straight down the middle and it goes in just because Bass um, decided to, to stand up. Uh, he just caught the ball pretty comfortably. Uh, this was Bass's first start of the season. Bazunu, obviously, Portsmouth's first choice keeper. He was busy playing Luxembourg last night uh, for Ireland. Um, and Bass was the man of the match because it was pretty much a Wickham onslaught for the duration of the game. They had 21 shots. Uh, a beater hit the woodwork. McCarthy hit the woodwork. And then Harness uh, got a goal um, about, after about 70 minutes, which he didn't take particularly well. He had a bit of a tap in and the first attempt he kind of scuffed, uh, but luckily the ball didn't get too far away from him. So he was then able to slide it in. And then if I said it was an onslaught before, after that, Wickham were just all over Pompey, wave after wave of attack. And Bass made two sensational saves in stoppage time. Uh, both of them really good saves. The one from uh, Akinfenwa, right at the death. I'm not entirely sure how he managed to, to get up and tip it over in the time that he did with Bayo charging in at him from close range. Um, so, you know, for, for Wickham, this is one of those classic examples where Gareth Ainsworth won't be. He'll be frustrated with the, with the result, of course, but he's not going to be too bothered by the performance. He'll know that they did plenty enough here to win the game. But Pompey have been, you know, this is a, a threadbare Pompey squad. They've got a lot of first team players out, a lot of injuries. Uh, Mark Quist was was out um, one of the unexpected ones before the game, which meant that Hurst started. Pompey fans were, were pretty enamoured by Hurst's performance. I think they would want Hurst to be getting a chance now ahead of Marquis going forwards. Um, but for, for Pompey, a big test where they stood up um, and they've got the, the keeper in Bass to thank, which might give Danny Cowley quite an awkward decision to make on the weekend because I, I personally don't think you can drop Bass after that performance. But then in, in Bazuna, you've got arguably one of the best keepers in the league. So uh, not a bad problem to have. Drekken Bass has been fishing for compliments in training today. I reckon probably has. I reckon he won't get hooked. Yeah, nice, nice, nice. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm willing to put that Wickham defeat down to bad luck and variance. Scout reckons they had 3.63 expected goals generated, uh, zero scored. And then just something to flag up, an emerging trend. I don't want to go as far as to say a concerning trend because it's still early days, but Wickham against teams in 10th and above. That includes Pompey, who are 10th now. They've played seven of the top 10. Uh, they've drawn three and lost four without a win there. Just three points in those games against the top 10. And against teams 14th and below, nine wins, one draw, zero defeats. So clearly very accomplished at, at putting away the uh, the lesser teams in the division. And that's it. very impressive. Uh, but probably need to do more against those teams that they're challenging for promotion with because it's in giving those teams points that you really lose uh, sight of the very top. So they must improve at that point. Uh, Wickham Wanderers. Burton nil, Charlton one. Johnny Jesus Jackson rides again, George. That's 10 points <laughs> from four games, three wins. And the draw, which of course was against Rotherham United, thought by many to be the best team in the division. Uh, what a start from JJ's Charlton. What was this one all about? Well, I mean, it was defined by a fight pretty early on in the game, which saw um, previous last season's Charlton teammates, Jaden Stockley and Deji Oshalaja. Um, yeah, they played played together last season for Charlton. I think seven games they played together in the starting lineup, but they were embroiled in an almighty scrap on the, on the floor. I mean, it looked... You can't see that much from the camera angle we're given because quite soon after it all kicks off, all the... 
or the players around them. Um, from what I could see, it looked like Oshelaja was the aggressor. Um, but then obviously we don't know what happens after that. I, I was going to say on Quest how it should have been a yellow card apiece. But actually, given that I was going to talk about the need for, for refereeing consistency about a certain League 2 game, I realised that would be quite hypocritical because I guess if they are actually fighting and throwing punches at each other, then um, you probably do have to make an example of them and send them off. And in Trevor Kettle, you've got a, a referee who is more than happy to show a red card, even if it is only after 17 minutes. So um, whether it had a, a, a huge bearing on the game, I, I'm not entirely sure. Burton lose a key centre-back, Charlton lose a key striker. Neither made neither made a sub, they just changed their shape. Um, I thought a 10 and, v 10 game for the, for like 80 minutes would be really open, more space on the pitch, and it wasn't at all. It was like a well, real grit and grind affair. I think the, the first half hour... Charlton were, were all over Burton. Like, you know, Burton couldn't get out at all. Um, and it was, you know, even after the goal, even after Charlton went 1-0 up, which happened just a, a minute or so after the red cards, Purrington from a uh, from a set piece after a flick on, um, Charlton still had their had their foot down and looked more likely to score. The, the game kind of became more balanced as it went on, but there weren't many chances really. Charlton never looked particularly um, in trouble. You know, Kane Hemmings felt he should have had a penalty uh, he was booked for diving again from the angle we saw. I'm not going to sit here and pretend I, I know if it was the right decision or not. Hemmings clearly thought it wasn't. And there were some serious discussions between Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank and, and Johnny Jackson on the on the sideline. But, you know, for, for Johnny, I can't believe we, we haven't woken up this morning to news of, of him signing a contract as a charter manager. I, I just don't understand what he's got to do. Uh, I, there must be a, a reason because... If Thomas Sangard was to go and appoint a, a different manager now, I think there would be riots at Charlton. Um, they've got they've got a manager who is a, a club legend who has them playing a completely different brand of attacking, energetic football. But not only is it attacking football, they've only conceded one goal in their four league games, which was against Rotherham. Um, he has a clear way that he wants to play. He's got the players on side and they're playing for him. They're picking up points. I... I, I yeah. I can only assume it must be something in negotiation because if I was Johnny, I'd be smashing the door down to the owner and saying, what have I got to do? Let's move forward. Let's commit to each other long term. Let's buy a ring, get down on one knee and let's walk off into the sunset together and have a beautiful marriage. Smash the door down or or probably more aptly click the link on the Zoom meeting because I yeah. believe Mr. Sangar. Smash the link. I remember when we interviewed him on uh, Totally Football League Show Extra Time last year and he we Zoomed him from Colorado. It was about 6am where he was and he was wearing a tux and drinking out of a mug, which I think might have had his face on. Anyway. Probably. Uh, Bolton, oh yeah, Argyle up next for Charlton. So another big test for, for Jackson's addicts. Uh, that looks like a cracking fixture now. Not an easy one for Argyle, that's for sure, to continue their unbeaten run. Bolton beat Crew 2-0. Uh, I'm afraid... Crew is a bit of a gimme for League One teams at the moment, and just what Bolton needed really after one point in five games, um, they weren't in great nick, were they? And yet, George, this one was just fairly comfortable, and it's the sort of thing where, even though it's not the most impressive opponent to beat, I think it could have, I think it could have an impact on just kick-starting Bolton's season again, or re-kick-starting it, because it started pretty well. Bakayoko's performance up top is probably the most notable thing, because Owen Doyle, as we've discussed, really struggling for goals, particularly in open play, really struggling to impact games uh, at this level like he has done so so often 
in League Two, and Bakayoko is really the only other option to play through the middle, and he himself has struggled for fitness, um, struggled for consistency throughout his career, really. So for him to get a goal and win the penalty that Sheehan scored um, will be the most notable thing, and I guess they'll hope that that confidence can continue and maybe put together a good run of form, Bakayoko up top. And then the thing that I think could really hammer home that the sort of good feeling about getting this win was uh, yesterday on Sunday there was an amazing event uh, at Bolton, a charity day, uh, which was organised to help fundraise for the, the treatment of Bolton's right-back Gethin Jones's mother, Karen, who has motor neurone disease. And just an incredible event. More than 13,000 fans were, were in the stadium to watch a, a Bolton All-Star eleven, which of course had JJ Okocha in it and was managed by Sam Allardyce, uh, take on the current Bolton side, which, inv- which included a second-half substitute Ian Everett, who came off the bench and scored a hat-trick here. So an incredible day, and you just sort of think, you know, that 48 hours, getting a comfortable home win, and then the, the sort of event with just such a uh, wonderful spirit to it, just clubbing, everyone clubbing together, could be very, very valuable um, when it comes to the next few weeks for Bolton. So that's something to, to watch out for. Crew's misery continues. Do you have any thoughts on what, what happens next for Crew? Like, it's it's so doom and gloom at the moment. Dave Artell looks so down, understandably. The team look so poor, somewhat understandably. And you just... It's hard to understand what happens next because it feels like Artell must have so much credit in the bank. I think I said it a couple of weeks ago that I'm just very surprised that he hasn't w- walked away. You know, he has a, a legacy at the club, but he's also got his own personal legacy to think about here um, because quite often there is no context applied to people's managerial records. We see that the whole time, you know, the amount of times we see managers being linked to jobs and someone will make a sweeping judgment on them based on a little grid under managerial statistics on a Wikipedia page rather than giving it any credit. So, you know, if David Artell takes crew down, um, even though in my opinion, he would have, next to no um, blame attributed to him, given how the ridiculous situation with um, the club not protecting their assets with certain players just seemingly just walking out on on the club. I mean, unless part of the reason was because of him, of which there's been no suggestion that that is the case. So I'm just surprised that Artar hasn't said, you know what, I think I need to move on for the for the benefit of my own career and, and give someone else a chance and try and find another job at this level, because... I can't really see a way out either. I mean, it would be an almighty achievement from him if they were to to get out of this mess. They're, you know, He's tried to change the shape in recent weeks. It's probably had a, an even worse effect. They seem to me to be a side who are either very poor or they play okay and still get beat. You know, I thought Bolton weren't particularly good um, on Friday night. You saw David Artel coming out after the game. Sorry, you saw um, Ian Everett coming out after the game and said, and saying how they sat incredibly deep. They was a, It was a low block. We had to take our time. Just not true. I mean, Ian Everett's alternate reality should be a, a TV show because, you know, you look at the pass map, you watch that first half, which wasn't the case at all. They engaged them pretty high up the pitch. Bolton had more of the ball, but mostly in their own half, um, only fashioning five opportunities to score. Um, it wasn't... It was way still beneath Bolton's... Um, performances from pre- from earlier in the season but I think given how poor their recent form has been it was an incredi- incredibly important win to get an important three points to get to stop the rot um, but yeah for car for sorry for crew there's there's nothing at all to be 
positive about, I'm afraid, at the moment. Ipswich drew nil-nil with Oxford United. Uh, what was the game like, George? Because many expected goals here and we didn't get any. Myself included. This game just always finishes nil-nil. It's ridiculous. I think it's four of the last five games between the two finished nil-nil. Um, yeah, it was it was a it was an okay game. Um, Ipswich fans were left fuming uh, at the way that some Oxford players um, approached the, the second half in particular. Um, you know, I, I think there was some, um, with some reason at times, I think, you know, Simon Eastwood going down with cramp made me laugh. Um, Oxford's keeper who hadn't kept a clean sheet since February 2020. Uh, <laughs> I think you can see why if you're a keeper who hasn't kept a clean sheet for that long, you might suddenly go down clutching your calf after 89 minutes. But um, there were a few niggles. Uh, Cameron Brannigan uh, went down with a genuine injury and played on. Matt Taylor went down with a genuine arm injury and played on. Herbie Kane went down about nine times. I'm not sure if any of those were genuine, genuine or not, but there was definitely a feeling amongst Ipswich fans that Oxford were trying to play for the draw towards the end, which is probably right. Um, having said that, it was that there were chances in the first half. I thought Oxford were, were five, by far the better team in the first 10 minutes. Then McCauley Bond hit the post with a header and Burst and Selina hit the post with a really good save from Simon Eastwood. You know, Eastwood was, was definitely the busier of the two keepers and probably man of the match, which again gives Robinson something to think about when Jack Stevens comes back from glandular fever, which is seemingly going to be quite soon. As a fan, I'd probably want Eastwood to continue, if I'm honest. Um but yeah, very little to report on the second half apart from um, a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of home fans booing, and I think Carl Robinson may have made <laughs> not that he'll care, may have made a new um, set of enemies at another club. Uh, I make that about twenty-two and counting. I think. Well, Ipswich didn't get the win that they wanted, but four points off the playoffs at the moment. Albeit they've played a game more than four of the top six. Uh, and two games more than, than Sunderland, who are four points ahead of them. So still a, a bit of ground to make up. Paul Cook said in his interview, we believe we're getting stronger. Uh, and I agree with him, to be honest. It's I still am not blown away by an Ipswich side that we had pretty high expectations for because of the summer recruitment. But I think quite quietly, they've raised their floor to a pretty high level and they're they're very difficult to beat. I know Argyle uh, got the better of them the other day. I know that they lost to Accrington, but since that really poor start, actually in the last 11 games, only Argyle and Rotherham have a better points per game tally in that time in the league. They've only conceded 10 goals in the last 11 games as well. I think Christian Walton makes a massive difference. It's impossible to explain what happened with Vaclav Hladki being the best goalkeeper in League 2, stepping up one level and, and being really, really as poor as I can remember a, a goalkeeper being across sort of 12 games, his underlying shot-stopping numbers on the, the Opta analyst site make for tough reading. And as I say, it was impossible to predict and very hard to explain. But even if Walton had come in and was performing at an average level, he was going to start saving Ipswich about half a goal a game versus what Hladke was doing in nets. In the end, because Walton's a good keeper, he's doing better than that. So that's a massive upgrade uh, that some people may not have noticed who don't follow Ipswich so closely. Huge upgrade in goal. Um, and then you notice that really to start the season, and you know, I'm not giving Cook much sympathy here. He had a lot of players to choose from, but there's been really no rhythm of selection until the last few games for, for Ipswich. 17 games they've played in the league and only two players have started more than 12. Now, 12 of 17, you, you can do the maths. That's only 70% uh, of the games. Only two players have started more than 70% of the games. By contrast, Argyle, who we spoke about earlier, they have 10 players 
that have started 12 games or more. So it gives you an idea of the, the lack of, of rhythm, as I say, in, in selection so far this season for Ipswich. But that's starting to settle down as well. And I think that that will have a big impact on results. Obviously, Walton will have the gloves now. George Edmondson's been great at the heart of the defence. Um, I probably didn't expect them to sign a whole new squad and for Janoi Donassian and Toto and Siala to still be starters uh, in the back four. But here we are. I'm both doing well. Uh, the Evans and Morsi midfield pivot is just automatic now. Uh, they know each other's games inside out, of course, from the Wigan days. Uh, Macaulay Bond, clearly the starting number nine. And, and so the only real question is uh, left back now and who plays in the three behind uh, Macaulay Bond. Edwards, Kyle Edwards, that is. Selena, Chaplin and Wes Burns are kind of the popular four. It's normally three out of those four. So, I mean, it's it's I think we're at the point where I'm feeling fairly bullish about Ipswich, even though, I, as I say, I haven't been blown away yet. I just think they're their lowest level is now still very high and i think they've got a they've got a few more uh, gears to get through in terms of their ceiling so i think they're certainly still banging amongst it and i would not be betting against them winning promotion even after that poor start uh, as for oxford uh, i note that you you in your first four away league games you drew one and lost three uh, but it's two wins and a draw since then. So an uptick in terms of results away from home will be quite pleasing. Sheffield Wednesday drew 1-1 with Gillingham uh, over the weekend. And first I want to mention Verdane Oliver. Uh, this is one of those nice moments for players. Uh, he was released by Sheffield Wednesday where he started his career without playing a single game. It's obviously been a long journey to this point uh, from release by Wednesday to scoring against them at Hillsborough for Gillingham in League One. Um yeah, really impressive. I mean, a cracking result, you have to say, for Gillingham, who were not fancied here, but who scored a, a goal from a set piece that was very poorly defended by Wednesday and then disrupted Wednesday as best they can. You know, they've upset the Wednesday players, the manager, the fans. Of course they have with with the, with the what is always described as antics in the media. Um, and that's nothing new. I don't think we need to rake over old ground when it comes to Gillingham's antics in inverted commas away from home because it's something that they do to help get results ultimately and quite often it works just in general on, on Wednesday because this is a disappointing result Connor who's a Wednesday fan in the NTT20 squad which is our community of EFL fans that we run through Telegram uh, using the company Leveller he asked me for, for some general Wednesday thoughts the other day because they've drawn so many games that we haven't spoken about them much on the pod so I thought I'd just share them uh, for anyone who's interested on the pod um, a, a decent side, but not one of the best five or six in League One, which is unfortunately for them a league with plenty of good teams. Uh, and because it's a, a league that Wednesday were expected to challenge for, being just fine doesn't seem particularly exciting. It has been enough to mostly avoid defeat. Only Argyle have lost more games than Wednesday in the league this season. But they've been very drawy, haven't they? And it reminds me a little bit dare I say it, of Sunderland from sort of 2018-2020, the first two seasons at this level. I, I think we'd both hoped that we'd at the very least see some quite exciting attacking football under Darren Moore, but I haven't been very enthused at all on that front, to be honest, just in terms of, of aesthetics and style of play. Um, but ultimately, I don't think things are horrendous, uh, and I think improvement across a few key areas certainly asserting dominance in games, which they do have at times, and they haven't been very good at putting teams away. Better attacking play, as mentioned, and then responding to going behind when they concede soft goals. All those things they could improve on and, and they would reach another level or two as a team. It kind of seems like they either play well defensively but not going forward or they're leaky defensively but they play quite well going forward. They haven't clicked yet. And I don't, I don't know if it will. I think at this stage of the season, teams and fans still assume that things will start to click. But 
There's nothing in the underlying numbers to suggest that Wednesday are about to explode into life and suddenly start playing like a top two, top six team. They have got Luongo to come back. I know the fans hinge, hinge a lot of hope on him. Um, maybe some of those attacking players that, that I haven't been that enamoured with so far might start to gel a little bit more. Um, I'm obviously enjoying watching Bannon play. I'm enjoying watching Delhi Bashiru play. Uh, the back three in general have been have been pretty good. Marvin Johnson at left centre-back. I bet you didn't expect you'd ever see that. Um but yeah, the jury's still out for me. The best thing about Wednesday for me this season is that their owner, Chanziri, hasn't ruined anything yet. Uh, that was my main concern heading into the season. So that's the big positive for me. But the jury's still very much out, I would say. Let's move into League Two. Busy weekend of League Two action. Uh, Forest Green, the league leaders, did not play, which means we can kind of focus on the same question that I ask myself every single week, George, and I still haven't got close to an answer. Who is the best team... In League Two, not named Forest Green. I think it's a fascinating topic, and particularly right now, where there are three points separating seven teams from second to eighth in League Two. Many of them played on the weekend. For the listeners' sake, they are Port Vale and Exeter on 29, Northampton on 27, Harrogate, Newport, Swindon and Sutton on 26, Swindon having played a game less. Uh, and then Leighton Orient, uh, they're two points back in ninth on 24. So it's a pretty fascinating division at the moment, George. Let's see uh, Let's see what we can work out. Starting with Exeter City, I think we should start with them. They won 2-1 at home to Oldham, and they set a new club record in, in winning. Uh, 18 games unbeaten in all competitions, 14 league games without defeat. Uh, it is a pretty amazing time to be an Exeter fan. Uh, they're in some form at the moment. They are, and you know, you made you made good reasons in the betting show why this wasn't necessarily going to be as easy a game as it looked. Um, and they did well to come through it. You know, with Matt Jay, a reliable source of goals. You know, in, in Matt Jay and Sam Nombe, they've they've had two players this season who've come into really good goal scoring streaks at the right time. They've dove they've dovetailed well uh, for any goal fans out there. I think they'll know what I mean in terms of just when one of them is scoring, the other one isn't. Uh, and Giovanni Brown, I mean, that is a mad stat that we spoke about on Quest. 45 goals, sorry, 45 games without a goal, um, dating back a long time. Nine, he scored nine in five games. And at the end of that run, went 45 games without a goal. I mean, that is just unbelievable. And he should have scored twice as well. He should have got a second on the day. He rolled it wide of the post. He is, um, he is joint, yeah. joint top for chances created per 90 per opter so he's still doing one part of his game uh, at a very high level nice um and then yeah i mean they, they were they were good they were just it's what we come to expect from exeter and matt taylor you know they didn't create loads they were clinical in front of goal they were the better side they controlled the game pretty well um they conceded a goal to jamie bowden from an absolutely unbelievable strike um spoke to um a friend of mine who used to work in the in the tottenham uh, academy who who was couldn't have been more um, glowing in terms of his praise for Bowden. You know, he said that Bowden was seen as being a very, very technically gifted centre midfielder at Spurs. He travelled with the Tottenham um, squad for the Champions League semi-final a couple of years ago. He came through at the same time as Ollie Skip. And even though Skip was always physically better than Bowden, Bowden was probably seen as being technically better than Skip, which, I mean, shows you the, the level of regard that he's held in. And I think, you know, my... My mate was quite surprised that he's ended up in having a loan at League Two level. Definitely thinks his future is is destined to be to be a bit higher. So worth keeping an eye out on Jamie Bowden. He's been playing most of the season, but this is the first time he's really crept into my consciousness. Well, not crept with a strike like that. Um, but that was the only kind of moment of 
real quality from Oldham who were chasing the game pretty early on and, and for Exeter you know they're such it, it, it kind of makes me so surprised that Exeter haven't been promoted under Matt Taylor because it feels like this is the what, second third fourth time during his reign where we've just had Exeter on this kind of run where they are impenetrable and they just they, they score every game they control games they have plenty on the pitch who can score you know you look at Jay and Nombe basically playing week in week out uh, and with Giovanni being the creator and then they're so solid defensively as well so um, you know, in answer to your question you know the, the initial I was going to say is the answer to who's the best team except for Forest Green were they the other team who weren't playing this weekend in Swindon who I think Swindon at their best might be the answer you know when they're at the level they were playing at when they played Forest Green and they beat them 2-0 away from home that's probably the answer but they're the, the breadth in terms of their performance levels is quite wide, whereas with Exeter, it feels like this season, you, you know what you're getting, and it is consistently 7, 8 out of 10, and enough to beat other League 2 teams. The only the only correction, if I may, is uh, not that impenetrable. They haven't, I can't even say the word, well, they haven't kept a clean sheet yeah. in 8, um, and that's a bit of a concern for me. If you look at the uh, open play XG against on the old Opters, of this group of teams, the top eight, if you if you want, they have the worst open play defence in terms of, of the chances they've given up. Overall, they've conceded 14 goals from 19 expected in total. So a bit of overperformance at the back. There's also overperformance in front of goal, you might uh, expect really with the quality of attacking player that they have. And, and I'd be more confident of that continuing. I do think compared to some of the teams like Port Vale and Leighton Orient, you know, they've got the they've got the reverse problem basically. Those two teams are so solid, so well structured. Exeter not so, but they're getting away with it at the moment because they're just so good. And to be honest, their attacking process is so good that I don't I don't see them, you know, starting to fire blanks in front of goal with the players that they have and the way that they play. It's it's kind of the, the perfect crime. So really entertaining team at the moment in general because they are conceding goals, but they're also scoring plenty. Four wins in a row, 22 points from their last 10, all really good stuff. Outside of that front three, because we always mention them, uh, Josh Key at right wing back, really fun, um, really good ball carrier, smart player. Uh, often if you watch the build-up of, of Exeter's goals, Key will be involved at some point down the right side. And then the defenders, Sweeney has the best progressive passing numbers in the league uh, and Hartridge on the other side of the back three, uh, not far off as well. So uh, in an attacking sense, in possession, just brilliant. Them and Forest Green, I, I love watching these two teams play and Swindon as well, of course, in terms of their style of play at this level um, but yeah just just some concerns about the defensive nature of their displays but as we'll probably get through every single club in this tranche of League 2 has some strengths and some weaknesses of course so um, we'll get through it Northampton are in this gang as well George they lost 2-1 at Bristol Rovers on the weekend what happened there? Bristol Rovers were, were, were much improved and deserved their win. You know, they went behind to a Sam Hoskins penalty fairly early on and it felt, especially given how good Cobblers have been defensively this season uh, at half-time, you felt like this was probably going to drift towards a, a 1-0 away win. But t- a couple of goals in quick succession for Bristol Rovers was, was the least they deserved. Um, very, very poor defending from John Guthrie for the second. Um, I'm not, you know, it's one of those where he just gets himself in a real mess on the turn, trying to play out and kind of falls over the ball. Um, and then Glenn Whelan was sent off for a second yellow for one of the slowest yellow cards you're ever going to see. It's one, it looks like it's going to be a really bad foul and then he kind of pulls out, but he's already committed. It's a bit harsh. Um, and Cobblers had opportunities to get a point. They hit the woodwork in, in injury time, but, but couldn't really break through. Uh, it feels to me like a 
a bit of a watershed moment, I think, for, for Bristol Rovers and Joey Barton because their home form has been poor. They haven't beaten very many good teams this season. They haven't put in very many good performances this season. Um, they got a, a, a good draw in the FA Cup at Oxford last weekend. They've got a good win um, to Cobblers. Um, they've got the replay on Tuesday night. It feels like maybe some kind of progress is being made on the pitch, um, which is, is much needed. And I think a key part of winning games at home is going to be getting those home fans back on side as well. So uh, an important win and a, and a deserved win for the gas. I really like Sam Finlay as a player in, in the heart of their midfield, but not as much as I like Anthony Evans, who I must admit, I, I was I was sleeping on the signing of Anthony Evans. He came in at the end of the window um, with Whelan and was it with Leon Clark as well? And it was a batch of signings that I felt was representative of, you know, a, an admission that the summer recruitment, which they got, a lot of people said they'd won the window in League Two because of their summer recruitment. It was an admission to me that that hadn't been good enough. And it was a it was a real show of support from the board to allow Barton to to sign, you know, two fairly old players as well who would command a, a decent wage, you'd think. And then Evans kind of snuck in as as the third, at least on the headline. But he's been their best player this season. He's played eleven league games. He's got five assists and two goals already. Um, and some of the quality that he shows in and around the penalty box in terms of creating chances, and in this case, in in, in terms of scoring goals, is is really impressive. Of course, at the back. They've been loving Connor Taylor on loan from Stoke, who, uh, having given away a penalty in normal time, uh, then cleared one off the line in stoppage time to secure the win. He was the EFL's Young Player of the Month for October, Connor Taylor. Um, sort of tall, uh, leggy centre-back who looks just pretty classy, to be honest. Stoke fans, I think, should be getting quite excited, particularly with the news that Harry Suter has been ruled out for the whole season with a horrible injury, which is just... Desperately sad news. Um, I don't know if they have a recall option for Connor Taylor and I don't know for sure whether they would want to exercise it anyway given the development that he'll be getting in League 2 with Bristol Rovers. Uh, Stoke, obviously, they still have four other centre-backs um, fit and ready to play. So I'm not saying that they're going to be calling back Taylor on the on, on, at midnight on the 1st of January, but he's doing a fabulous job. Um, and it's still just a, quite a weird team on paper, Bristol Rovers. It, it, I know that in the current day and age with the rise of universality in footballers, no one's got one fixed position, right, that they have to play. But players do have a, a natural position. I think we can still uh, I think we can still say that. If you look at Bristol Rovers starting eleven from the weekend and look at what I, I take to be the natural position of each player, you've got the three centre-backs, Kilgore, Taylor and Harrys, then basically four central midfielders, Coots, Whelan, Finlay, who all played centre mid, and then Josh Grant, who's been a defensive midfielder for his career so far, but played left wing back here and apparently played very well. Then you've got two wingers, ultimately. Anderson, who plays right wing back now, who's you know works well in that role, I'd say. And Nicholson, who plays up top, but kind of a, a fluid wide forward role. And then an attacking midfielder in Evans, who's also kind of playing up top. So no out-and-out striker. No like natural wing backs, you wouldn't say. A ton of midfield players. It, it's kind of strange, but... I guess with smart, versatile players, especially ones who, compared to the level, most of them are technically very good. You know, if they can adapt, if they can get used to that, then it kind of works. But again, not to be negative, it doesn't reflect very well, I don't think, on a summer of recruitment. Like, we spend so long talking about teams that recruit to a style of play, who know how they're going to play and recruit to it. And it makes the players look better and it makes the team work better when you do that. Bristol Rovers are almost working backwards now. They, they've got this massive clump of players and they're sort of desperately trying to work out how to get them into a system that works. At the moment, 
it's it's going well. They've had a good few weeks, and hopefully that'll be um, the sort of the level to to work off now. Sutton are just excellent, George. Eight wins in their last twelve League Two games. Um, they are very much part of this conversation, and they went to Tranmere uh, and won one nil over the weekend. Uh, you mentioned that John Guthrie made a, an error for Northampton. He's been so reliable this season. Peter Clark you can say the same about Peter Clark, can't you? Really desperate to see him make such a clangor that cost his team points. Yeah, um, I mean, this was better from Tranmere. You know, I've been I've been putting the the boot into Tranmere for the last. Um, couple of weeks uh, but this was a much better performance from them they actually looked like a side who were going to fashion goal scoring opportunities which is more than we've been able to say about them for the last uh, few weeks Kieran Morris came off after an hour which I think baffled a lot of Tranmere fans uh, who thought that he was their most creative player their best player in the park and then five minutes later Oluwafe scored after Clark dilly dallying at the back trying to play out and was caught by Oluwafe, who I mean his pressing, he he pressed, um, he pressed Knight Percival to start with. He then pressed doing the the keeper and then pressed Clark and, and got his rewards with a a chance and a finish. Um, you know he's clearly um, coming into his form again, the kind of form that we saw last season in the National League after his injury, still on loan at Sutton. Um, but yeah, but Tranmere were better. They they created more chances than we've seen. Um, they. It's not a massive surprise to me that they are now conceding goals. As we said, it was never going to be sustainable what they were doing before. Uh, it does feel like possibly Mickey Mellon and Tranmere fans, you know, it, it feels like that that run of, of conceding no goals despite not conceding no chances may in the long run harm Mellon because I think maybe expectations of what was achievable um, possibly built on such a solid defence in air quotes uh, raised expectations to a level which were not fair. So now that they're falling away, um, a lot of Tranmere fans are wondering what's going on, whereas actually the performances I don't think have changed too much over the course of the season. But um, yeah, there was, again, positive signs here. But for Sutton, you know, if you take a step back here and you told Sutton fans 18 months ago that they were going to be going to Prenton Park and beating Tranmere 1-0 in League 2, I mean, that's just one of those kind of fairy tale they wouldn't have believed it stories which sometimes it's easy to to forget um and, and incredible what they're doing you know on the brink of the playoffs on completely on merit playing well beating decent sides every week um amazing for them and, and over the moon for for Matt Gray and, and the whole club really because it's it's you know they, they are a side they're a player here in my opinion they're a player who, who's going to be who could well be in the promotion mix in that top seven mix for the whole campaign um, so don't expect Sutton to fall away. I, I'm, I'm, unless something goes wrong, unless Gray is, is is recruited as being a possible one for all these managerial jobs that are going going up at the moment. I don't see any reason why Sutton won't continue to build. Just such a proper winning football team who know exactly how to go about doing that. Uh, Olafe here with the goal is just the sort of the sprinkling of stardust that that they that they were waiting to come back from injury. Ajaboyi, the number seven who plays right midfield, he is stardust and he is performing very well in his first season at League Two level. But Alafe is just such a menace and more of a um, certainly more confident in front of goal than Ajaboyi. Playing up top off a, off a big man, they've got Bennett, they've got Bugill, um, they've just got so many options at the top of the pitch. But Alafe is the one for me. I mean, I, I remember when they played Port Vale a couple of weeks ago and it was the featured game on Quest. Uh, they sent the cameras down there. It was a brilliant feature. There was a bit of play of Alafe 
running or basically a long goal kick from Buzanis, which the uh, Port Vale defender, he let it bounce. And Alafe covered about 70 yards quicker than anyone I've seen cover 70 yards this season. In the end, he harried the defender into heading it out for a throw rather than being able to control and play out. Uh, and they ended up scoring from the long throw. And it was one of those things where Alafe doesn't get an assist, he doesn't get a key pass, he doesn't get a goal, he doesn't get anything. But that's stuck in my mind. And since then, everything I've seen of him is just it just goes to my belief that he's an absolute menace and a great, you know, a great asset for Millwall in the future, you'd think. But brilliant that they sent him back to Sutton because I'm sure he would have had a lot of a lot of suitors. Um, brilliant that Sutton were were happy to wait for him to recover from a, a horrible injury that he got at the very start of preseason, and he's repaying their faith because he is the, the difference maker along with Adjaboy, that extra quality uh, in and around the box. Because the the base of the team is just so solid. That back four of Kizzy, Goodliffe, Rowe, and Milsom, absolutely automatic at the back. Um, brilliant here in keeping a clean sheet against Tranmere. One nil winners. Uh, another away win. George Newport County beat Hartlepool. On Friday night, this, to me, looked like a very, very good away performance. Certainly not dominant, but a strong display with, again, the perfect ending for Newport and new manager James Robry, who's pretty much living at something of a dream right now. Amazing. They're in the playoffs. I just can't, you know, it was under my mind, things weren't like going particularly well. Wayne Hatswell came in, did a decent job as caretaker. Robry comes in, three wins from three, and they're sixth. Five points off, off top. Um, amazing and this was um, a, yeah a decent performance you know coming up against the Hartlepool side who hadn't lost at home although we should say probably the best time to play against uh, Hartlepool given they're just part of the company with Dave Challoner um, a quick aside party company weirder, with Dave Challoner left in the lurch by the long throw merch yeah <laughs> was that scripted no it just, that just came right off the bat merch enjoyed it um, I a quick aside, one of the this whole Andy Woodman to Hartlepool thing is one of the weirdest EFL stories I've seen recently. Go on. Where you've got well, his name emerged, he's Bromley manager, done a decent job at Bromley over the last year or so. His name's being linked in the press. You know, obviously geographically there's nothing to link um Bromley and Hartlepool except for a, a long, long stretch of roads. Uh, and <laughs> and uh and, you know, he's there, he's, he's in the bookies list, it's being reported, and suddenly loads of the usual suspects who who normally their EFL um, news is pretty spot on report on Thursday or Friday. Andy Woodman has agreed to be the next Bromley manager, sorry, the next um, Hartlepool manager. He'll be leaving Bromley shortly. Bookies stopped taking bets. He's 40 on in one place. And then both clubs come out and they're like, we don't know what's going on. Nope. Uh, both Hartlepool and Bromley, just like, there's been no contact. Andy Woodman's like, I'm not going. Bromley say, yeah, we haven't heard anything. Hartlepool say, respectfully, we've never been interested in Andy Woodman. And everyone just kind of moves on. Um, and a couple of people deleting the tweets that said um, that he was set to sign there. It is bizarre. But anyway, we'll, we'll keep following that with interest. I notice he's still the bookie's favourite with some people, so um, firms maybe not believing. But it, it struck me as both clubs being quite genuine and being like we just don't really know what's going on here um it'll be interesting humble pie if, if he ends up actually going um but anyway back to the game the, the, my favorite thing about this game was well obviously that dominic telford scored the winner and continued his ridiculous form but i think that is one of the low-key best finishes of the season so far it's such a weird goal where the ball has no pace on it it's kind of bouncing it's about shin level he's got two men on the post and the keeper and he he, he decides to, to do like a weird craned head diving header. And I 
struggle to see many other ways that he could have scored. Um, the defender on the line can't get down to it in time. It's a proper, you know, for a guy who isn't necessarily the most natural goal scorer, despite the, the run of goals that he's enjoying at the moment. Um, in the 93rd minute, it was a brilliant, inventive bit of um, poaching play that end, ends up getting them the three points. And it was deserved over the course of the game as well. They were the better side. So, uh, yeah, continuing, you know, uh, Rob Edwards impressed us early this season with, with Forrest Green. Straight away, I think you could tell he had something about him. And I think the same is true now of James Robry. We're seeing very, very quickly that he is a step up on, um, not on Michael Flynn, but on maybe those managers who've had 10 jobs already and have been sat from pretty similar jobs in the past and then get another one at the same level and the system's working so well at the moment as well clearly baker richardson and telford scoring every game uh but it's not just them the, the wingbacks particularly norman down the right side and haynes who's been consistent for them for a few seasons now um doing what you'd want from from attack minded or or at least wingbacks who need to impact the game in the final third um ups and sort of sets the tone sets the tempo from the base of midfield he had the most touches in this game by miles and then cooper and azaz are kind of the, the quality attacking eights uh who robry's been talking a lot about their development because they're both on loan i think azaz is on loan from from Villa, who signed him off West Brom in the summer, which was peculiar, uh, and Cooper on loan from Swansea, I've mentioned a few times. These guys are, are really exciting technical young uh, young midfielders, uh, and they're both playing excellently. Azaz combined really nicely early on in this game for a chance, which uh, I think was well saved, or, or yeah, well saved by the goalkeeper. Uh, and then the back three of Clark, Dolan and Dimitri, they've kind of been doing it at this level for quite some time now. And Dolan still loves to to just pick the ball up off the key for, uh, keeper uh, and start play from there. So really enjoying watching Newport under Robery. Um, very, very exciting times. One of a number of teams that I'm excited about in League Two. Uh, Mansfield beat Stevenage and this spelled the end for Alex Ravel. Just quickly from a Mansfield point of view, the victors here. It's back-to-back league wins, which is crucial for them as they look to rebuild their season. First and foremost, get well away from the relegation zone, which they flirted with, uh, and then see where they can go from there. Um, They had 11 points after 14 games, which was not good enough. They've just got over uh, one point per game. 17 through 16 now looks a little bit better, and I'm sure that they'd want to look upwards. I obviously picked them to win on the betting show. Um, It probably wasn't as... You know, it wasn't as comfortable as my bullish description made it sound. Uh, they traded set-piece goals for 1-1 here. Jamie Reid playing up front for Stevenage against Mansfield, where he never really clicked. Uh, he hit the post twice, two really good finishes as well that just clipped the inside of the post. Uh, and then Ryan Sturk scored a, a brilliant winning goal, the first touch that was either lucky or incredible. Uh, inventive either way, I think I'll meet halfway. Uh, and a good finish, scored the winner for, for Mansfield. And they had their goalkeeper, Nathan Bishop, to thank for a brilliant save later on to secure the three points. Um, so they're moving in the right direction, but I'm not getting carried away off the back of this win, especially because, George, we often say on a Monday when a manager has been sacked, if you're beating a team whose manager is about to be sacked, that's probably because they are at the end of their tether, not the toughest opponents. And that was the end of Alex Ravel. Interesting wording on the tweet, which, to be honest, I enjoyed because it, it just shows the level of respect that Ravel still has at the club where he's uh, he's very, very popular. This is clearly a sacking that comes with absolutely no glee or excitement or anything like that and I know that's a strange thing to say because it's it's unusual that you would have those things when a manager gets sacked but I think you know what I mean um the Stevenage tweet said Stevenage and first team manager Alex Ravel have today agreed that change is needed and a new management team will be appointed um I'd like to know how that meeting went do you think the do you think the chairman was like Alex would you say yes or no that change is needed 
Yes. I reckon I reckon Alex Ravel knocked on the door and said, lads, change is needed. I need to leave. Right. <clears throat> well, I he don't has. think that's the case at all. It's a, he has. It's a peculiar one for us, isn't it, to understand what's happened this season because we were, we thought they'd be top half. We thought they might flirt with the playoffs after such a strong finish to the second half of last season. But they've only won one in their last 14 league games, eight points in 14 games in that time. And they, they are down towards the bottom. There aren't that many relegation candidates at the moment. And relegation to non-league, as discussed last week on the pod, might be quite troublesome um, for a team with mm. uh, like Stevenage who don't have an unlimited budget, so to speak, in non-league terms. Uh, what do you make of the whole thing? I, I think if you compare it to the other team in League 2 who've just sat their manager in Scunthorpe, um, looking at Scunthorpe under Neil, Neil Cox, it's been fairly consistently bad, except for a couple of, of runs which proved to be the, the anomaly. And there was very little at any stage of, of Neil Cox's reign in charge of Scunthorpe to suggest that he was a good manager. And therefore, when they appointed Keith Hill, I was very quick to say, yeah, I think there is a reason here why we can expect them to improve. With Stevenage, over the course of Alex Revel's um, tenure, he took over the club at a very low ebb. They should have been relegated. He should have been managing them in the National League. They were reprieved due to Macclesfield's um, you know, basically effectively going out of business. And last season, there were plenty of occasions where they looked like a really good side. And, and me and you both said, you know, this looks like he could be quite an exciting manager. You know, there were shades of, of, the, of the Mike Duffs about him where Duff came in at Cheltenham and it took a bit of time, but immediately you could see that he was improving them. This season, they've been very, very poor. I would say that at times, you know, Saturday being another one where they've come off second best in, in pretty tight games, maybe not quite had the... The, the rubber, the green, but they've been poor. You know, I, I backed them for relegation a couple of weeks ago. Basically, as soon as Keith Hill was appointed Scunthorpe manager, I thought to myself, Scunthorpe are probably false favourites now to go down. Who is the team around them that I think I can be most confident are going to continue to be poor? And, and I landed on Stevenage. Uh, I might have to re reevaluate that depending on who they bring in. But my point is, it wouldn't be a massive surprise to me, even if they put off an appointment that on paper we, we liked. If it turned out it wasn't Alex Ravel who was the issue here if maybe the team isn't good enough you know two sides have to go down it's not always the case that the manager is, is the one at fault for the teams who are looking likely to do so I know a lot of Stevenage fans reading their opinions afterwards all seem to say the same thing you know he leaves us with great respect but at the same time a change had to had to be made yes a change had to be made but the only change that is possible to make at this stage is changing a manager you can't change the squad you can't change the owner you can't change the the, the director of football is bringing in the players either. So I'm, I'm going to be interested to see how this progresses, um, you know, who they're going to bring in. I'd be impressed and surprised if they get in someone of, of the same calibre as Keith Hill. Um, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that the, the, the Graham Wesley isn't going to make another um, triumphant return to, to Stevenage, but I, I'm, I'm intrigued to see who they're going to bring in because, in my view, it's a, a big call made to part company with a manager who had you playing some some pretty decent stuff for large swathes of the last season. For those who are interested in underlying numbers, and particularly when it comes to managerial changes, uh, they have been somewhat shafted by the uh, by the XGs, or rather somewhat shafted by poor finishing and poor goalkeeping perhaps, or a couple of good finishes from the opposition. Um, so far in open play, expected goals 4, 12.5 generated, 8 goals scored, underperformance of 4.5 expected goals there. 
And on the other end of the pitch, open play XG against 14.8 expected goals, 20 goals conceded, underperformance of 5.2 expected goals. Now, those who really, really love the data would suggest that this is probably a better job than it might look because, George, you might you might drink from the sweet, sweet cup of variance quite early on here. Um, so I think it. I think it's a better job than it might look based on the league table. Having said that, I know there's there's frustration with how the club's being run. I don't particularly know whether it's a lack of ambition, whether it's considered that they just make poor footballing decisions, uh, whether it's a mixture of all of the above. It doesn't feel like the most upwardly mobile club uh, in League Two, but. I don't think they are destined for a relegation scrap if the new manager can start well and find a way particularly to unclog the attack because that's been Ravel's problem the whole time. Even when they were excellent in the second half of last season, they were basically a playoff team or playoff level team for, what, 23, 24 games to finish the season, but they still weren't scoring enough. Uh, and that was the big question this summer. You know, Are they going to find 20 goals more than they scored last season? Well, they haven't, and uh, and Ravel has paid the price. Uh, Walsall lost at home to Harrogate. Harrogate's recent poor poor run of form in the league uh, arrested with a, a, an impressive win here at Harrogate. They were set on their way by a really nice free kick from Simon Power, who I want to see start more games for Harrogate because, and I know it's easy to say after he's just scored a nice free kick, I think he's really good. I think he could be excellent. And I want to see more of him. He, he started the first league game of the season against Rochdale, Simon Power. He had one incredible run and shot, which was uh, which went just over the bar that really caught my eye. Just the speed that he had uh, travelling down the wing uh, with the ball at his feet was very, very notable. Um, I looked at underlying numbers from last season on Opta. And with the caveat that Power only played about 1,000 minutes, so he didn't rack up as many minutes as someone who, who played the, the full season, his creative passing numbers were brilliant. Uh, only Wes Houlihan created more chances per 90. Uh, and then there's chances created per 100 passes, which is a nice uh, metric as well. And Power led the league for that last year. Um, again, accepting a smaller sample size. But I think that shows that he's he's obviously a high volume passer, but he's not just constantly trying a killer ball and getting like one out of 10 right. He's actually pretty precise with his passing as well, has good execution. So, you know, Simon Weaver, what I've learned this season particularly, is incredibly loyal to his starting eleven and hates changing it and hates making subs really. So they've used the fewest players in League Two and they've made the third fewest subs in League Two. So once you're out of the Harrogate side, <laughs> it's very hard to get back in. Weaver very, very rarely changes his team. So this was only Power's third start of the season. Um, and well, he took his chance, didn't he? Thompson was rested and now you'd, you'd assume that it's Power's spot to fill. So hopefully he stays fit. And I think we might talk quite a lot about Power over the next few weeks. And on the other side, Jack Diamond has been brilliant for them as well and, and scored a nice goal here. I, I must admit, I don't know if you noticed this as well, but I've been impressed with Walsall's goalkeeper, Rushworth. He's on loan from Brighton. He's, ha he's having a really good season, really young goalkeeper, good shot stopper. This wasn't his best game. Um, Power's free kick... I think would be one that you'd be upset to let in if you were a goalkeeper, although it was a powerful shot into the corner. But then the second goal, the ball was played through for the onrushing Diamond while he was in his own half, and Diamond's first touch was inside the box. No one touched the ball in between. It was a through ball. So my question to the goalkeeper is, and you can't see because of the camera angle, how can a ball be played through from the opposite half? How can the attacker run onto it 40, 50 yards and take a touch 
16 yards from the goal you know if you assume the goalkeeper's probably he's probably not standing on his line to, in the first place anyway he's only got about 10 yards to move while diamond has 40 50 uh, and he decided to stay on his line and and that would have been pretty disappointing as well so i think after a, a good few weeks for walsall this would have been a bit of a kick in the teeth um you know they've got players missing the fans want to see them back uh, i think there's a feeling that outside of a a, a a core of players they probably lack quality in depth uh, and maybe that was uh, a problem here Harrogate's game plan was played out very very well quite a few draws George Port Vale 1 Bradford 1 Rochdale 2 Orient 2 Scunthorpe 1 Salford 1 any of those tickle your fancy I'm not even going to talk about Barrow Carlisle because someone tweeted us saying nothing happened yeah it was on it was on at the same time as Port Vale um, Bradford on and the side-by-side TVs, and I must say, there was only one game that I had my, my eye on. Um, yeah, Bradford fans won't thank me for saying it. They, they didn't seem to like it on social media on over the weekend either, but, I mean, it's one of the worst refereeing displays I think I've ever seen. Um, you, you know things are bad when both managers are just hating on the ref, um, and both Derek Adams and, and Daryl Clark had reason to, to be pretty angry with him, uh, although Daryl Clark definitely the more of the two, because not only was the decision not to send Oscar Threlkeld off not just totally baffling for just the most blatant second second yellow you've ever seen. Any other player on the pitch, he gets a second yellow. The mad thing about it was is that wisely knowing that any, you know, just another foul of any of any description, Threlkeld would have been sent off. Um you saw Derek Adams making the decision to to hook him off, get move folds out to, to right wing back, bring Rydhouse on. And then for the equalising goal, it's it's it folds out on the, out on the right hand side, swinging in the ball with his left foot for Angle to held it to head in. So not only did um, should they have been down to ten men, but the actual tactical switch that saw um, that was only implemented because Threlkeld needed to come off. Got the equalising goal after that. Um, I got it wrong on Quest. I said it was O'Connor. It was actually Canavan elbowed George Lloyd um, in the head and probably should have been sent off for that as well. I know Bradford fans feel very strongly that Nathan Smith should have been sent off for a, a last man tackle on Liango. I, I, I must say I disagree. I think the yellow card was right there. But um, yeah, if you're if you're Daryl Clark, I think you have every right to be fuming because um, they should have been playing against in what was a very difficult game. And Bradford, I thought, were fairly poor until... Uh, James Wilson's goal. Although, having said that, Charles Vernon actually scuffed a, a very, very good chance to put them 1-0 up about 30 seconds before the goal. But I thought Port Vale were the better side. But as soon as Port Vale went 1-0 up, Bradford were by far the better team in the second half and were, were really impressive. It looked to me like a game between two sides who were going to finish in the top six this season. Um, but if we want consistency in football and there was just no excuse or reason not to show Threlkeld the second yellow there and that changed the game. Rochdale 2, Orient 2 was entertaining fair because Newby scored in the first minute and Newby scored in the last second. And for the 93 minutes in between, Orient were much the better side at Rochdale. Uh, So it was just right at the beginning and right at the death that they let themselves down. Um, Amazing scenes. I feel like Rochdale's an entertaining place to watch football at the moment, that's for sure. Um, But yeah, it's a tough one for me because... I'm just impressed with Orient's performance here. I think they deserve to win, um, but they didn't get the win. Uh, and so there's not a huge amount of conclusions to draw. Newby's an interesting player. Um, I was privy to some some very, uh, very sexy underlying numbers that were shared with me that I'm not allowed to share, I'm afraid. Um, and they suggest that Alex Newby is uh, is 
putting up some very good numbers, both in terms of ball carrying and in terms of creating chances with passes. Um, and that's that's pretty exciting. I think it matches the eye test in that he's he's a good highlights player, newbie. He's capable of some very, very good things. I'd like to see him become a bit more of a killer because I do think ultimately his, his technical level is is. I would go as far as to say way above the level. Um, but particularly, I reckon I've seen two full Rochdale games this year and both times I've been frustrated with his performance, I guess because of what I perceive his ceiling to be and what I perceive him to be able to do almost at will when he fancies it. But maybe maybe physicality is something that, that he struggles a little bit with at the level, whatever it might be. I felt like there were a lot of times in the games that I've watched where he's tried stuff and it hasn't come off. And his response hasn't been great, so um, a big a big day for him to get two yeah important goals for his team. Someone that I like a lot as a player. I want to see him um, kick on from here. And then lastly, Scunthorpe won, Salford won. I mean, Salford now they're on 17 points from 16 games. Uh, it's a really slow start to the season. This kind of summed it all up really. Um, going behind to what was a pretty unfortunate goal, or I, I suppose fortunate uh, ricochet, certainly in the build-up. Um, and then sort of starting to play and getting a nice equalising goal and not being able to get the three points. It kind of summed up Salford's season. But just talk to me a little bit about Scunthorpe appointing Keith Hill, because we haven't done that properly on the pod, George. Um, I think we said as much as we could possibly say about his uh, predecessor, Cox, who was sacked a couple of weeks ago. But Keith Hill... Very experienced League Two manager uh, comes into a, a difficult job. Overall, I think I'm right in saying it's a it's an appointment that you're positive about for the club. Yeah, I am. I mean, he, there are, there's no denying after both the the job at Bolton and the job at, at Tranmere that um, Keith Hill's stock is pretty low, and, and especially because you know, you know on, on a footballing note. Um, Keith Hill did an okay job at Tranmere, especially in in the short term. You know, he got them, he steered them to the playoffs, got them to a, a the Papa John's final as a League Two side. Um, but things obviously went very, very wrong. And, and the issue I think the Hill has is that he's, I think he had a bit of a character assassination, to be honest, uh, when he left. A, a lot of talk about how the players didn't like his style of management. A lot of talk about the way that he's, you know, he was maybe um, a bit archaic in his methods and. You know, I think managers can bounce back quite quickly from poor results, but to bounce back from from stuff like that, whether it's true or not, is going to be more difficult. So this is a big job for Hill because I think if he if he doesn't get this right, a guy who you know looked to be a mainstay of, of League One, League Two management just a couple of years ago, and who looked to me to be a bit of a coup for Bolton to to hire given their low ebb when he came in, I think if this doesn't go well, Keith Hill's going to struggle to get another job in the EFL um, anytime soon. But having said that, he you know if you look at the the managers around him. Um, Keith Millen has been brought in by Carlisle, a guy we know very little about. Uh, you've got Alex Revel, who's just been um, sacked as manager of Stevens. You don't know who's going to be coming in for them. But Hill is, I'd be pretty surprised. You know, Keith Curl, of course, at Oldham. I think Hill is just a cut above these guys. And that is the most important thing for Scunthorpe. If, if they're going into battle with five other clubs for those two relegation spots and they have the best manager, I think even if they don't have the best squad, even if they've got the worst squad, there are uh, there is uh, there are points to be had just by having that advantage. So I think it's a I mean it's clearly a big upgrade. Even if Keith Hill isn't going to be a manager who who gets you know who has the kind of career that maybe we thought he was going to have when getting the Bolton and Tramier jobs, I still think this is a job that he'll be able to do and, and do well. You say a lot about Scunthorpe squad there. We've got the best squad 
the NTT20 squad. <laughs> it's our EFL community on Leveller, uh, over 100 strong and still going strong, that's for sure. We got uh, chat threads for each league, Championship, League 1, League 2, the quality of the, the match previews and the breakdowns and just general thoughts, people answering each other's queries is incredibly high. Um, but we've also got, and this is very particular to our latest topic of conversation there, an NTT20 gaming squad for those who enjoy playing video games. Most particularly, you won't be surprised to hear, Football Manager is on the agenda at the moment. A lot of FM22 chat. In fact, we decided to start a, a community challenge. People like myself, uh, many others on there who wanted to get their teeth into FM22. We thought it'd be fun if we all uh, managed the same team. And Scunthorpe, we chose... Uh, Scunthorpe United because in basically everyone's pre-season predictions they were in the bottom two so we felt like that would be the biggest challenge that we could imagine within the EFL so we currently got I guess 15 of us on the NTT20 gaming squad uh, chatting through our Scunthorpe United FM22 saves which has been great fun I think it's really helped a lot of people um, sort of uh, their enthusiasm for the game and to get cracking so if that sounds like something you would enjoy, and for many people, you will have switched off by now. But if you think you might enjoy that, why not give the NTT20 squad a try? And you can come and join us uh, managing Scunthorpe United on the on the community challenge. The, the link to join is in the description of this podcast. It's it's on our bio on Twitter as well. Um, there is a, a, a monthly subscription fee, but you can have a two-week free trial and you can get a lot done in two weeks. So why not sign up? We'll see you in there. Um, you, you can check it out for yourself and see what it's like. Two-week free trial available if you join the NTT20 squad today using the link in our bio. Thank you so much to Betfair for sponsoring this podcast. As always, we'll be back on Thursday with a betting show previewing the EFL weekend. Have a great week. We'll speak then.